Hello, and welcome to the Health Trick Podcast with me, Jill Foose. I'm a functional medicine and integrative nutrition health coach located in downtown Chicago. I'm the founder of Jill Foose Wellness, a private concierge health coaching business where I work with individuals, groups, and corporations diving deep into helping folks discover their own unique health equation to optimize their wellness. Join me and my guests as we venture down intriguing science-packed roads, debunking old medical paradigms, perusing new innovative therapies, modalities, and protocols while living our best life. On today's podcast, I welcome Dr. Sean Tessone. He is the first physician in the United States to be double board certified in obstetrics and gynecology and by the American Board of Integrative Medicine. He holds a medical degree and in addition to a PhD in mind-body medicine. He is a practicing OBGYN in Texas in Austin, Texas, a hormone specialist, author, speaker, highly rated patient advocate, and creator of the world's first integrative hormonal mapping system. In his 20 plus years of practice, Dr. Tessone has seen over 40,000 women and he is determined to remove the myths surrounding women's health. As an integrative health practitioner, he believes that you should have an active role in your care. His work includes studies and publications on hormonal imbalances, spirituality and medical care, whole foods to heal the human body and integrative medicine. Dr. Tessone is featured in many publications, including the New York Times, NBC News Online, Stanford MedX, and his book, The Hormone Balance Bible will be available for purchase later this year. So we, um, although Dr. Tessone is a medical doctor, I am a health coach. We are not here to prescribe any medical advice. Hopefully you'll walk away from here with many golden nuggets of information to bring back to your primary care physician or your own OBGYN and have discussions about possible further testing or lifestyle changes. And with that, I welcome Dr. Tessone. Thank you so much for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. So today we're focusing on women's hormones and the different ways in which we can achieve balance. Every day women wake up, including myself, and it's like playing Russian roulette. Will I feel good or will I feel like crap? Am I going to feel like having sex tonight or am I going to feel like running away from my life partner? So these are all red flags for us women to take notice of. And there's women listening right now to this podcast episode saying to themselves, I'm getting older, I feel like crap, and it's just my new normal. Dr. Tisson and I are here to tell you that that couldn't be further from the truth. All women experience hormonal imbalances for multiple reasons and for multiple causes. Discovering your unique health equation, which includes optimizing your hormones, requires a lot of patience, a trusting partnership with your doctor, and a lots of self-love because this is not an overnight process and it can be very frustrating at times. Anything you want to add to that before we start diving in? I think um, I always like to convey the message that uh, hormone imbalance is it's a term that we use pretty flippantly. And um, uh, there are a lot of physicians out there that don't think hormone imbalance is a real thing. And I think they're just getting hung up on the word imbalance. There are many times in a woman's life when, when things aren't necessarily balanced, um, for instance, puberty, menopause, pregnancy, uh, certain times in the menstrual cycle where things are out of whack but it's kind of a normal out of whack. When I like to get involved or when I think it's an issue is when it interferes with the way that you want to live your life. So if you, like you said, if you are, you know, if you don't have a sex drive, if you can't get up in the morning and do the things that you would normally want to do, that's when the imbalance I think is 
Absolutely. And so many times I have women um, either in a in perimenopause or menopause or postmenopausal uh, situations come to me looking for lifestyle changes and telling me that their traditional OBGYN told them to take sleeping pills or take it's take an anti-anxiety or antidepressant drug that it's all in their head and this is just part of aging and do the best you can. And that's so sad to me because I'm 53, I have had five vaginal births and um, I have half a thyroid and I have had my own journey of coming back over the last 25 years from hormonal imbalances and, and still have them. And it is a journey. And if someone tells me it's in my head, that's just going to infuriate me. And I think a lot of women deal with that or they're told that even though um, they feel horrible, that their labs are normal and or it's yep. just part of getting older or there's so many things that they're told. And that there's I think there's two reasons for that. One is, first of all, women's health is at the bottom of the food chain. It's it always has been. I think it's because of the patriarchal type of structure that we have in medicine. Um, but secondarily, I think that it's it's also really difficult of a topic. And to really sit with a woman and find out what's going on and not just put her on say a birth control pill to, to really dig deep and try to figure out what the imbalances are, or why the imbalances are there. It takes time and it takes effort. And I, I just think a lot of physicians, not good or bad, but they're just so busy. Um, it's just so much easier to put someone on a pill. Absolutely. Um, I really want to focus today on hormone replacement therapy. Uh, I'm at that age and I've been doing that for myself for the last two years. And is this something that all women eventually are going to have to do? Well, I can answer no, um, in the sense that my grandmother didn't, but she was a really old Italian woman who, you know, uh, I think she felt like suffering was part of life and, and, you know, it was, it was normal. And, and I, I see this all the time where there's a lot of women out there that are either one afraid of hormones for many reasons, um, or two, um, they, they, they don't know what to use. They're getting so much information from pellets to, you know, from health coaches and supplements to doctors saying, just go on the pill. Um, but I would say, if we looked at all women, probably ages 50 to 60, um, would there be a two-year period in that time span where you're going to want to be on hormones? It's probably north of 90%, just because of the, the, the issues you see with vaginal dryness, hot flashes, mood swings, irritability, weight gain. I mean, I go on insomnia, you know, all that. So usually those women, probably even at 45, um, and up will we'll be coming into the office for at least one of those things once or twice over that time span. Yeah, absolutely. So when, by the time a middle-aged woman makes it to me, they usually come to me because they want to work on weight loss and just having more energy. And what I usually want them to do and suggest for them to do is to go to a functional medicine MD and have a deep dive in blood work done. Because to me, Finding out all the information we can before we start the process is, is half the battle, right? Let's know exactly what's going on in your body. 
Let's know what things are working, what things are not working. Because if I start helping them on a weight loss journey and they're, they're not having any hormone replacement therapy support one way or the other, it's a harder journey to lose the weight. And oftentimes I find that when women go get the deep dive in blood work, they get on the appropriate supplements or they start taking hormone replacement therapy, they start losing the weight automatically and the journey, and they're also happier. So in they're better, they're in a better starting place to then start another journey, such as losing weight or working on exercise or a new sleep routine. But when they come to me, they're already at the bottom. They're at their, they're below baseline and they just feel so bad about themselves. Their body doesn't look like it used to. Their mind isn't focused like it used to. They're constantly tired. Um, they, they don't want their partner touching them. And it's just a, a barrage of negative symptoms that that's happening. Can women start hormone replacement therapy earlier? Like, why do we have to wait when we're in it and feeling like such crap? Can't, can we bump it up some years to help that process? I mean, I have women in their twenties, their late twenties that are on uh, testosterone or, um, thyroid, progesterone. Um, so yeah, there are, there are certainly times, especially younger women with, um, PCOS or, uh, a woman, especially that has had like surgical menopause, um, uh, that's younger. And some women go into menopause in their mid forties. And technically that's not abnormal. It's, it's young, it's on the young side, but it's not abnormally young. Um, and, and even, um, perimenopause, perimenopause is that, you know, I would say 40 to 52 time zone. Those are the most difficult uh, patients to um, treat because their hormones are not static. You know, when you're in menopause, things are basically zero, right? When you are in perimenopause, you're going to have maybe months where things are really low, and then you could have a month where things are normal and uh, maybe have one hormone be a little on the high side. And so, it, it can be a little difficult. And, and that's where the, I think the doctors are just like, you know, I, I hear this, I just heard this excuse today um, from someone who said they went in and, and their doctor said, well, I don't test hormones in women in their forties because they're all over the place. And, and that's, you know, oh, but, that's but, that's terrible. The, but that's the mentality is that it's, it's not, it's not, uh, it's a moving target, but the, the point is in those women that have that issue, it's about consistency and it's about persistence and, and staying with it and knowing that, you know, Hey, maybe right now you're low in progesterone and testosterone a few years from now, you might also be low in estrogen. So things are going to shift and things are going to change. And you just have to be like, like you've said, you know, you have to be your, you have to be your best advocate. You have to be the one that's going to find the provider that's going to be willing to help you. And I also think, and this, you know, sometimes, it goes against um, sometimes the functional medicine train of thought. I'm, I'm still one of those people that takes insurance. So I tend to do a lot of blood testing. Um, I do some urine, I do Dutch testing, but patients that come see me are interested in uh, using their insurance. And, and I think it should be available to people that have insurance, these kind of tests and whatnot. Um, but, but, and the therapies are also usually covered by insurance except for compounded hormones, those aren't, but they're $45. So functional medicine and, and, and hormone replacement, especially, 
should be available to every woman. And the thing about it is you shouldn't have to pay thousands of dollars for it, I guess would be my, 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 my little soapbox issue. Oh, absolutely. And I was going to ask you, what is the main difference between a traditional OBGYN and a functional medicine uh, doctors, uh, who's an OBGYN approach on hormone replacement therapy? And you started to um, answer some of that. But in terms of blood work, what would the main differences be between a traditional doctor and a functional medicine doctor? I don't, I don't think it's the, the type of testing that we do per se, as much as it is how we look at the tests. And so my, my thing is this, it, let's say, let's say a, a testosterone level, a free testosterone, because that's the active form of testosterone in your body. In a female, the normal range with the lab I use is 0.2 to 6.4. So that is literally a 32 fold variance in that, that range, a big range. And let's say you come back at 0.4, um, it's normal, right? And most physicians would say your labs are normal. So, you know, you're just getting older or whatever. You don't, there's nothing, you know, if you don't want to have sex with your husband, if you don't have energy in the afternoons, if your hair is thinning, oh, it's probably just stress. You know, you need to, you know, see a therapist or something, or let me put you on Prozac, whatever. Um, the way I would look at that is that, okay, you're in the house, uh, which is normal, but where are you in the house? And in that case, she's in the house, but she's laying on the floor in the basement, right? Mm -hmm. So it might feel better. It might look better. Your outlook on life might be better if you're on the main floor looking out one of the windows versus laying on the floor in the basement. And we don't, if we, what we don't do in, in conventional medicine is usually we don't extrapolate the patient's symptoms with these low normal findings, we just are black or white. You know, it's either, you know, we're sort of borderline in that sense of it's either in the normal range or it's not. And if it's not in the normal range, then we'll treat it. But if it's in the normal range, you're fine. But we don't look at that woman and who's, and I can't tell you how many thousands of times I've seen it where uh, I have a patient who crashes at four in the afternoon every day. And I put her on testosterone because she's low normal and she's like a completely different person. And then we start working on the things like, you know, the exercise routine with weights and, and increasing protein intake and, and lowering your processed food. So I can get her feeling better because it's hard to eat and exercise when you don't feel good, you know? And so that's why I'll go to the hormones initially, and then I'll start working backwards and kind of get them into it that way. I love that you brought up testosterone because I can't tell you how many women clients I have that don't even know they have testosterone. They think that testosterone is only for men because it's something that's never really been talked about. Um, and testosterone is what gives us our zest for life. When I was, um, gosh, like almost 20, 25 years ago, uh, after I was done having some babies, my ovaries stopped producing testosterone naturally. And I was put on back then synthetic testosterone and it wrecked me. Uh, you know, it was very hard to control the levels of testosterone I had. I felt like the man in the house. I wanted to just rip my husband, my then husband's face off. <laughs> and it was very difficult. And my mood was irritable. I, I think I, my, on my arms, I thought more hair was growing and it took a long time to come back from that. 
like years to get off of it and, and get back to my baseline. And I think testosterone is one of these things where we all need it, but it's really tricky in terms of finding the right dose. And it's a big process. How, what is your feelings on using pellets to help females out versus um, some of the more topical creams or pills? First, uh, the form of testosterone that you were on back then was probably methyl testosterone, which is um, an oral form of testosterone. Yeah. And that is probably the worst form of testosterone you could. It was awful. Um, and we had a medication out back then called Estratest, which was a combo pill of uh, Premarin and uh, methyl testosterone. And both of those medications are, are horrible on your liver and they're super strong. So um, a lot of women didn't like those headaches and like you were talking about irritability. Um, as far as pellets, I, I have said this for years. I'm, I'm openly anti-pellet. I'm, mm. I'm not a fan of pellets and I have a blog post and I have 10 reasons why I'm not a fan of pellets. And suffice it to say, um, pellets are um, for animals, not for humans, in my opinion. And what they and it and I think and this is just me again. I I think it's lazy. I think it's um, it's a lazy way to do things because um, you're you're putting in this wampum dose of hormones, so her uh, levels are going to shoot up for the first two to four weeks, right? Going to go and and you're going to feel like a million bucks, no doubt about it. Right. Some women don't, but a lot of women feel great because your hormone levels are literally through the roof, like. A lot of women that are on testosterone pellets, I see routinely four to five times normal um, elevation, like almost to the level of a man. So that's going to make you feel good. And then what happens is um, you get a sawtooth pattern. So up and then it drops and up and then it drops over about a three to four month period. So you have this peak at a month where you feel great. And then the rest of the time for two months, you're dropping. And even though your hormone levels are still elevated, like they're not even in the normal range you feel bad because you've gone down about 100% in your level because it was so high. Um, so it's a, it's a catch 22. It's like, I, I liken it to drinking Gatorade. It's like they, they, they market it really well as being a, you know, something you should drink, but it's all sugar. And, and then they put citric acid in it, which dries out your tongue. So you want to drink more. And that's kind of what pellets are. And then a lot of the people, and this isn't all, this is a lot, a lot of the folks that put in pellets um, they'll go to a weekend course and they're all of a sudden hormone experts and they're putting in pellets and pellets are super expensive. They're three or 400 bucks every quarter, whereas mm -hmm. a cream is probably 45 bucks a month. And the topicals and the sublinguals, if you don't like the effects, you can stop the dose and it's out of your system in 24 hours. With a pellet, you're stuck with it. You can't take it out. Absolutely. And I've done pellets before and I have had too much put in and been over 900. And if anyone is out there listening and familiar with pellets or testosterone levels, 900 is like what my 21 year old son has naturally, right? If, on a good day, right? It is a lot of testosterone and can absolutely alter the way you feel. Um, and then, and, and you're right, there's the waiting game. And it could be months until that is out of your system and you're feeling good. Furthermore, I 
think that testosterone, when it's too high for women, might lead to hair shedding and thinning, because that's what happened to me a couple years ago. What are your thoughts on hair shedding from testosterone or other hormone replacement therapy? Um, and why is it happening during menopause? And what are some of the newer modalities of therapies to get it back? Um, hair thinning is probably one of the more common complaints, um, probably 40%, 50% of women that I see have that as a complaint. The three hormones that are typically at the top of the list for hair thinning are um, testosterone, progesterone, and um, thyroid. Um, the thing is, that's funny, is everybody's afraid of because if it's if it's high, like you said, you can you can have hair loss. Now, usually hair loss from too much testosterone is because it converts into dihydrotestosterone, which has issues on the hair follicle, but you can only really have an issue with dihydrotestosterone if your testosterone levels are high. So if your testosterone levels are too high, then you'll get that male pattern kind of hair loss. So you'll get the receding hairline. Mm -hmm. If it's a generalized thinning of hair, Usually it's because your testosterone is actually low because the hair follicle is actually anabolic. And so it responds to testosterone. So women that have low testosterone will have thinner hair. And if you give them testosterone, a lot of the times the hair will, will look a lot better after a few months. So low or high can cause hair thinning, but high to, to have hair loss with high testosterone, it's gotta be pretty high. Um, pregnancy is a time in a woman's life when hair is really thick and amazing. And then after she delivers, all of her hair falls out for like three or four months. And that's because the progesterone stops your hair growth in a phase called telogen, which is kind of right before it falls out. Mm -hmm. So the high levels of progesterone <laughs> in pregnancy halt your hair for, from falling out. So when you're pregnant, your hair's really thick and lush. And then after you deliver, all the hair that was going to come out over the last six to seven months, all of a sudden start falling out over the next three months. So women will call all the time and they're like, oh, my hair's falling out. So when women have low progesterone or they have a syndrome like polycystic ovarian syndrome, where they have high estrogen, low progesterone, they can have hair thinning. And then we also know low thyroid can cause um, hair thinning. So, and I would say out of all the hormone imbalances that I see, I, I have a quiz um, that's actually pretty involved. It's about 36 questions and it's got a mathematical algorithm on the back end. Um, I've had about 20,000 women take the quiz and probably uh, over well, the majority that, um, that I see are uh, uh, low testosterone. It's, I used to think that um, estrogen dominance would, would, would be the top one but uh, far and away, uh, low testosterone, it seems to be is what a lot of women are suffering with. And so if somebody comes to you and they have hair thinning, what are some of the newer modalities that you would suggest? What are some of the things you like? Like I know that PRP, exosomes, amniotic fluid injections in your scalp have been used. That's pretty advanced and expensive. Uh, there's the red light therapy helmets that people can wear now, uh, serums, medications. What are you favorable towards? It's all about stimulating the hair follicle. And I, what I will do mostly, so here's what I will do is I will try to find out 
if those big three that I talked about are low. If they're low, I will replace them with the caveat that it's going to be about three months before you notice because hair is going to have about a three-month cycle. And so we want to give it some time. I would say if I treated 100 women with hair loss, um, now keep in mind when a woman comes to me with hair loss and she'll say she has hair loss, I will look at her and not be able to tell that she, I, I think her hair looks fine, like great. Um, but it's a perception on her end. Now we do lose about 140 hairs, right. but it's excessive and she thinks it's excessive. So that's what matters. And so um, I'll give it a three month try with just making sure that the hormones are okay. If, if it, and I will probably say less than 5% of women that I get balanced will um, still have issues with hair loss. So the good success rate if it's still persistent, the first step that I'll take with them is I probably would recommend that they see a dermatologist just to make sure there isn't some under, because hair is part of your skin. And right. so um, if that's not you know happening, then we want to make sure it's okay. Second would be, I really like to um, make sure that you know, you're getting a good amount of fat in your system, whether that's through diet or supplements with fish oil or something like that. Um, you know, we, you, women can buy now minoxidil over the counter that you can wash your hair with. It smells horrible, but what it does is it causes the blood vessels in your scalp to dilate and it gets more blood flow to the follicles. So that could help. Um, you know, I don't know if it's you, the number one cause of hair thinning like that is stress. Um, so it might be important to look at cortisol levels if I'm not making progress just to make sure she doesn't have like, you know, a lot of cortisol going around. Um, and it's easy to just say it's stress, you know, but it, then you got to start getting people into, um, you know, you can buy those machines, the scalp massagers and the red lights and all that. And they, they probably work, but before you spend thousands and thousands of dollars, um, it probably would be important to work on your stress, you know, um, work on massage, try to take up yoga, try to, you know, maybe start meditation because I don't think we really realize how deep stress can affect us. And, and hair, hair thinning is, is an end sign. It's a sign of something going on in your body. That's right, because your body is holding on to everything it needs to keep you alive. And hair growing is not an essential um, component to life. So it's gonna let your hair go if you're under duress in, in a chronic way. And I love that you have the, the mind-body medicine um, uh, PhD, and I'm sure that that plays a huge role every day with women that you see. I know for me, the experience of seeing my hair shed a couple years ago made me even more filled with anxiety and then I was depressed about it and then you know it's just it's a it's a vicious cycle and my functional medicine MD would say you know you need to de-stress you need to find a way to stay calm and be patient and you have to really dig deep in a time of that uh, hair thinning or shedding to stay balanced and calm it's really tough, especially if you have kids and a job and this family and this whole life that you've got to manage. It's, it's really difficult. Um, can genetic SNPs, which are mutations for those of you listening who have never heard that term, it's SNP, can those genetic mutations affect 
the way in which a woman responds to hormone replacement therapy? Like, is that information that you would want to know about? such as like the MTHFR. So a lot of these genetic mutations um, for the listeners out there can affect the way you detox or the way you absorb vitamins and minerals and can have an effect on your overall, overall well-being. So what is the role, if any, does it, that it plays? Well, genetics is obviously important for a lot of things, although we are not, you know, there's a great book out um, called Dirty Genes that actually goes into this in depth for people that great really book um, uh -huh. and and we are not necessarily our genes we can we can alter some things we can change how we eat we can change how we live our lives and exercise and things like that um for people like especially with mthfr um that don't um, have good methylation and have their b vitamins that is something that can definitely help the way you detoxify your estrogen as you said um it may not necessarily change the way you respond to a hormone, but it will, it might change how you get the hormones out of your body. And so it might, it's important sometimes to know those genetic components, especially for those women that have a, a family history of breast cancer and they're worried about that. That's just one more angle that you can look at to help your body um, detoxify it, the hormones after they're, you know, breaking down and to uh, get it out of your system once your body wants to get rid of it. Yeah. And how important is pooping every day in terms of getting rid of the excess estrogen that builds up in your body? So it's funny because if there is a, a, a big distinction, I think between men and women, pooping is probably it. Now I have, I have three sons and one daughter. And so there's always poop in my house, um, even the, and they're 17 to 27. There's always, mm -hmm. always poop somewhere um, and a dog. So it's always somewhere. Right. Um, for a woman, um, any, first of all, any uh, technically constipation is more than three days without going to the bathroom. Now, I don't think that that's even healthy. I think it's better to go more than every three days. But that's really common in women. And I think it has to also do with holding things in. It sounds silly, but it is. It's like, mm -hmm. it, I do think that the stress and, and not being able to vocalize and, and you're obviously anal retentive is the word, but it's like, you're just holding on to everything. Um, the reason that it's important, especially for hormones is estrogen detoxification, because you, you do get rid of extra estrogen in your body through your stool. And the other thing that's fascinating is your body is really good at trying to reuse things. So when the estrogen's in your stool, there's an enzyme in your stool that will try to cleave the estrogen back off and let it go back into the bloodstream and be reabsorbed. And some people don't need that. They actually need to void that out. So you can um, give them a supplement that will help block that enzyme and then they'll, they'll get rid of more of their estrogen. So Pooping is for important for obviously so many things. And um, I think that for women that don't have a routine, um, I see it a lot when I'm traveling um, with my significant other, you know, if it's a different bathroom, she won't go for like a week. Mm -hmm. And it's like a switch. It's just like it, for guys, it's like you have a cup of coffee and you're ready to go. Mm -hmm. um, but, but if you don't have routine bowel movements and you talk to patients about this, obviously, you know, increase your fiber intake, increase your water intake, a big <clears throat> magnesium supplementation yeah. and uh, uh, high doses of 
of fish oil um, as well. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, let's say a, a patient comes to you, she's being, having successful results from hormone replacement therapy, and she still has a very low to zero libido. What are the next steps you can take to help? Because hormone replacement therapy for me wasn't an automatic in terms of upping my libido. I absolutely needed some extra support. And there are a lot of options out there. What would be your next steps? Well, I guess my first question would be, um, why do you have a decreased libido? I think women are never really asked why. Um, there's so many reasons for that why. And for guys, and I'll tell this when men come in, it's like, um, you wake up with an erection, you can have sex. For a woman, it's a process. Um, and the first stage of the sexual response is arousal. If you're not aroused for whatever reason, you're not gonna wanna have sex. And unfortunately, with our caveman brains, we think if we come up to you in the kitchen and make our moves, that all of a sudden you're gonna just turn around and attack us. Right. And the reality is, and now don't get me wrong. We, we might attack you, just not in the way in which yeah. you're expecting. <laughs> Proviso, I am divorced, so I'm not a relationship expert. However, I have learned that um, if you, and I always joke with the guys and I'm like, look, rule number one is she's not going to have sex with a jerk, you know, sorry. Um, but if you're rude and you're not treating her nice, that's going to not, you know, she's not going to want to have sex with you. Number two is uh, for if she's tired. So women with low testosterone, the way that testosterone helps it's not going to necessarily make you want to have sex with him. It's just going to give you more energy, a little more zip and zest. So if you're, mm -hmm. if you're fatigued, you're not going to want to have sex. Um, if you feel better, that might make you more interested. I always joke, I could put your testosterone up to 900. It won't necessarily make you want to have sex with him, but it make, might make you want to rip his face off. Um, so that's when you start digging into the whys, like, are you, um, are you tired? Uh, a lot of women complain of decreased sensation in the clitoral area, um, and we can do different things for that. Some women have the issue where they just, the relationship is kind of south and you, know, you need to work on that. So I think it's a, it's a really open-ended question. Like, why does she think that she has? And you can ask, you could have asked that of yourself back in the day, um, why, you know, and if you look back and if you really sit down and think about it, a lot of those instances, it's just the relationship has kind of stale, you know, a little stale, a little stagnant. She doesn't feel appreciated or taken care of or, or in these times, a lot of women now, if not a majority are working all day um, in these high powered jobs and they're coming home and they've got three kids under the age of seven and, you know, they're making dinner and they're getting the kids ready for bed and then come nine o'clock, they're dead. They're ready to go to bed. And there just isn't a whole lot of time for sex in that arena. So in my opinion, the, the guy's got to work a little bit harder. And that's why I say, you know, don't go up to her in the kitchen and, and try your moves, do the dishes, you know, let her go sit down and take a load off and share the responsibilities. And I still think that we don't have that happen enough. And I agree with a lot of that, but let's just say patient A has a loving relationship 
She is on hormone replacement therapy and she feels good. She's doing all the right things, exercising, eating well, getting the sleep, and still her, her libido is low. And what are your thoughts on certain types of therapies such as peptide therapy? I think peptide therapy is this amazing new area of science. And um, I wanted to get your opinion on peptide 141, which is supposedly the one to help enhance a woman's libido. I think it's also used for men. Uh, peptides are, are really interesting. Like you said, they're, they're a fascinating kind of new um, thing that we can use. The, the problem with them right now is that they're they're not necessarily black market, but they're hard to find and then hard to find a good quality. But yeah, um, remelantonide, I think is what that's called. It's, yeah. uh, it's, uh, it's, um, it, it is used for treating sexual uh, desire disorder or HSDD, which is hypoactive sexual desire. Um, it's, it's contraindicated in some women that have high blood pressure um, because it can increase your blood pressure. Um, it has, you know, some other small side effects like nausea and, and things like that. But overall, um, it's one of those things that, um, it works on melanocyte or melanocortin receptors and, and that's getting kind of technical, but what happens is it basically just, um, makes you feel better. Like your mood is elevated and, um, and it's the same in men. Um, it works both ways, but it's it's one of those things where right now, so here's the question. Let's say you take it and you have an increased sex drive. The, the, the criticism right now is that it might just be because you're taking a pill, right? You know, we know that Prozac uh, for depression, 60% of patients that get better with Prozac are from placebo. We know that. We know that's part of how it works. And I think it's, it's possibly the same with peptides. I, I don't, I don't know uh, any good studies. They're they're currently they're called peptides because they're they're not they don't have a medication name yet. I think actually um, that one does. It's called um, Bilisi or something like that. Yes, actually, that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So it has yeah, a thank brand. you. And so mm -hmm. that one might have more research behind it. Mm -hmm. I haven't actually re recommended that yet, just because uh, there was a pill that was FDA approved that came out a while ago called Ali. Um, mm -hmm that was which was interesting because that drug actually if you looked at it it was pink so they were playing off of the blue pill um, for men um, they made it sound like it was kind of like viagra it was in the same category as antidepressants so um uh, and and if you took it you couldn't drink any alcohol because it could cause you to pass out and so um most i would think a lot of women in this day and age go home and probably have a glass of wine so the the number of people that could take it is very limited and the studies that they did on it were on there were no women in the actual pilot it was all men so i don't know how they figured it out but um it's a typical medical study it doesn't include women but it's a women's medication so i never actually prescribed that one mm -hmm. um I, I i think peptides are great to look into i don't i'm not an expert on peptides but but i definitely i've i've used them myself for certain things i haven't you know used that particular one Right. Well, I'm glad you brought up alcohol because my next question has to do with lifestyle. 
How important is nutrition and exercise and sleep when it comes to going through perimenopause, menopause, and postmenopause? You know, now that life is opening up again, I'm assuming many people are going to be out and about. Traveling is crazy right now. Everyone's looking to go somewhere. And people are with, you know, their friends and family and outdoor gatherings, and there's a lot of alcohol. How does that affect women and their hormones? So I, I think that unfortunately, like you said, we alcohol is actually interesting. Alcohol, I heard uh, somebody describe it the other day. Medications like Valium and, 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 and some of these other uh, like LSD and things, those are more like surgical uh, scalpels. Like they're very specific on what part of the brain they work on. Alcohol, he described it as um, a mental hand grenade. Like it, it, it actually on your brain, it just hits everything. And it's a stimulant in the very beginning. So when you first start drinking alcohol, it's a stimulant so that you get a little bit more chatty. And, but then if you keep drinking it, it becomes a depressant. And so um, obviously, you know, that would in, hinder sex drive and, but it can also hinder inhibition, you know, your, your, you know, make you more or less inhibited and things like that. So it can definitely affect things. Now, as far as nutrition goes, if there was a food pyramid for uh, hormones um, at the very bottom, which is the one that you do the most of that would be nutrition for me, that, that thing, that for me, I think a lot of our hormone imbalances are caused from poor diet and obesity. Um, and, and I think, um, not enough, you know, weightlifting and exercise, which would be the second, the second layer. So between those two nutrition and, and proper, um, and I think the, the best exercise for women would be weights. Weight Absolutely. Training. Um, I can tell by your guns there that you probably lift a lot. Yeah. I do. And muscle, muscle, muscle is going to make you live longer. It's going to give you a lot more benefits and increase your metabolic rate just sitting on the couch, you know. And so uh, there's a good friend of mine, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, who's an M. Uh, she's a doctor yep. in New York. And that's all she talks about is proteins and, and working out. So anybody that wants to learn more about that, she's a great resource. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's quintessential. Those two things, nutrition and proper exercise are the two best things you could do for yourself before you spend any money on anything else, clear out your cupboards, buy good foods, speak with somebody like you. That's a, a functional nutritionist, figure out what you should eat. Look at your macros, you know, like how much of carbs, how much protein, because here's the thing you hear a lot. I eat right. I exercise. I still can't lose weight. Um, happens all the time. People say that all the time. Part of the problem is, and I'm guilty of this too. Uh, the other day I grabbed a little handful of peanuts and, um, I said, Oh, let's see how many calories these are. So I looked at the can and it was like 170 and I was like, Oh, that's fine. I got 170 calories. Well, then I said, well, let's, I, I have this little food scale and I weighed what was in my hand and it was three servings. So, um, so that was actually, uh, 510 calories you know it's like uh that changes the game totally so yep. um i think we we underestimate what we eat and we overestimate how much we work out absolutely and i think that if women stopped fearing fat as part of their daily diet they would feel a lot better and it's one of the first places I start. And I love Dr. Lyons too. And I listen to her all the time. And fat, that cholesterol, and it's because of, right. we're afraid of cholesterol. 
the cholesterol is what your hormones are made of. Exactly. So you gotta have fat. And, exactly. And fat, good fat's not gonna make you fat. You couldn't yes. really eat enough of it because you feel you wouldn't be able to eat that much of it. And it's That's right. I personally like nobody's gonna sit there and probably eat four or five avocados a day. It's just like not right. physically possible. Right. But you can eat one and 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 people are so afraid of our guacamole. You know, I would much rather see somebody eat a bowl of guacamole instead of the bag of chips. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. And I try to teach all of my clients, um, including men, that when you combine the appropriate amount of protein and the fat, so whether you are keto, carnivore, low carb, whatever it is, if you prioritize eating those two macronutrients before you go to the carbs, that you're going to feel nourished and satiated and you're not going to snack all day because part of the reason we're also feeling fatigue and not well is because we're snacking all day and it takes a lot of work for our body to produce insulin to take care of all of that glucose coming in every time we eat. So absolutely prioritize protein and those healthy fats and saturated fat is not the demon. Um, so before we end, I have two final questions for you. What are your top three lifestyle changes women can make today to start their hormonal balance journey? Sleep. Uh, gotta sleep. Now that's that's loaded because sleep is hard and it's very, uh, it's very stress inducing for a lot of people. Um, but I would say that's, you really want to work on that. You want to find out what's going on. And I don't necessarily want women to sleep, um, on ambient, you know, I would much rather have them use, I use yarrow or, uh, hops, hops flowers, um, for that. And I, I get a lot of women off of, uh, ambient with hops. Uh, Nature's Way is a great brand. It's like $9 and it works really well for a lot of women. Valerian and melatonin and mm -hmm. like that can help. Um, sleep hygiene is super important. Blue blocking glasses at night before you go to bed, not using your phone when you wake up, um, things like that. So that's one thing that's difficult. Two, two more fun things that I talk about um, is uh, at the at, if you can do it, um, work your way up. Uh, every day when you take your shower, turn the water on at the end as cold as you can get it. Mm. Um, for 60 seconds, most people probably can't do that. I can maybe do 30. Um, or if you have a cold plunge pool, go, you know, jump in the water. Um, that resets things. Uh, cortisol gets you kind of started for the day. And then finally, um, eating um, a little square or two every day of uh, high uh, cacao percentage uh, chocolate. Um, that also is good for you. It's good for your vascular system. Uh, it's good for your brain. Um, it, you know, unfortunately it's not milk chocolate. I have a video coming out actually probably this week where I, I sampled nine chocolate bars from milk chocolate to 95% cacao. And wow, that 95% is horrifying. But, um, but uh, I have a lot of friends that just eat it and they'll eat one and I don't, I, it's tough. It's tough to down it, but, uh, but that, those are, those are three things I usually recommend. So here's a trick with their super uber dark chocolate. If you take, like, I love macadamia nut butter. I don't eat it that much anymore. Cause I live more of a carnivore lifestyle, but when I did, I would smear a little bit of homemade macadamia nut butter on the hundred percent chocolate bar and put on some Redmond sea salt. And that was delish. 
Oh, so, okay. so just a little, just a little hack there. And my hundred percent, but I'm glad I didn't because that that <laughs> killed me. Well, anything dipped in a nut butter is, you know, pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I could. I the thirty five percent, the forty five percent, those were okay. You got get. I think you got to get up above sixty before it's really helpful. And yeah. that's when it starts tasting horrible, but, um, but definitely it's something everybody should try. You should have like a chocolate tasting thing at your house with some wine or something and, and just see what people think of those different bars. It, it, it would probably be pretty funny because it's those higher ones are harder to eat. Yeah, they are. And my final question to you is what are your three top food choices all women should have in their daily or weekly rotation? Oh, probably a good uh, fatty fish um if you can if you don't like fish um you know obviously take a fish oil but a you know salmon or halibut or something that's uh you know wild caught um i'm a big fan of spinach i think spinach is a great um if you put it in smoothies or if you just put it on things um for me that's a, a go-to um try to try to eat it a lot myself and then finally, I'm a big fan of flax seeds. I, I, I like flaxseed oil, but the flax seeds, if you grind them up and um, just put them in the freezer or something, you have to grind them up as you are aware to get the oil out of them. Right. But if you actually take the seeds and you get all that fiber, and we were talking about fiber earlier, so it's nice to get the fiber part. You can sprinkle it on salads or put it in a shake. Yeah, that's a good um, point you're making about grinding the flax seeds. So many people eat them whole and they just go right through you. And so you're sort of wasting your money and you definitely want to buy them whole. And then you want to get a little coffee grinder and grind them yourself. Um, because most of the time, if you buy them pre-ground, um, you can be certain that they've been sitting there in the package for a very long time and have probably already gone rancid. So you don't want to do that. Well, Dr. Tesson, thank you so much you. for taking time out of your busy day to talk to me and my community here. I know all of the women will appreciate all of the wisdom that you have shared with us. And I will attach all of Dr. Tesson's contact information in the show notes. And you have a book release coming up soon. Tell us about that real quick. So over the last, uh, gosh, 20 years, um, I've been sitting there listening to my patients. And what I noticed was uh, consistent storylines, themes that were coming through with these hormone stories that I was listening to. And basically kind of boiled it down into 12 hormone imbalances. And what I found was um, if I talked to patients in that same storyline, um, they understood it better. So I attached an archetype tag to each hormone imbalance. So like uh, estrogen dominance is the queen and testosterone deficiency is the nun. And there's 12 of those. And then each of the 12 hormone imbalances has a six step process that I call shines, which is a spiritual practice, hormone modulation, infaceuticals, and that's things like um, acupuncture, um, essential oils, um, things like that, uh, nutrition, exercise, and supplements. So each 12 has a six step process of which 80% of that is self-care. The only time you need a physician is for the hormonal part. Um, and the book is kind of all about those 12, but it's also about testing and, and, and things like that and, and each of the hormones and, and why they work. And it's uh, HarperCollins uh, coming out uh, July 7th. And actually you can buy it right now on Amazon. Oh, well, congratulations on that. And for all of the ladies listening, if you go to... Um, 
Dr. Tisson's website, which I'll put in the notes again, you will see a mapping quiz and it's really incredible. I took it and um, it'll tell you which archetype you are and really fascinating information and questions. So thank you for developing that. So thank you again. Thank you all for joining us and listening in. And uh, I would love to contact you again and talk to you about another amazing topic for women's health because you are just so full of wisdom and experience and knowledge and have a wonderful day everybody until next time thank you